Charles Lamb. Uh, let me identify him. Uh, Charles Lamb was a man of letters and an essayist, a, a, a British essayist. He died uh, in 1834. But for a time, he worked in an office. And a superior once reproached him for his bad timekeeping. He said to him, you arrive late, Mr. Lamb. And uh, Mr. Lamb looked at him, and in his own defense, he countered, but see how early I leave. <laughs> now, some of the people in Thessalonica also had a problem with time. It wasn't arriving late and going home early. It had to do with the resurrection and the coming of Christ. They had been taught by Paul that Christ was coming again. And he had taught them the gospel. They knew that Jesus had died for their sins. But they were fairly new to the faith and they had not yet fleshed out, if you will, in their minds fully what this meant for those who have passed on. Is the benefit only for the living? What about those who've passed on before us? And so Paul writes to them this letter and addresses that problem in chapter 4 and parts of chapter 5. You see, they had a misunderstanding with respect to the second coming of Christ. Uh, they were confused as to exactly what that meant. Now, let's admit from the beginning that Paul has, if you will, an eschatological scheme that is a doctrine of the last things that sometimes can elude one. You see, the apostle understands the events of Jesus' life and the coming of the kingdom as, if you will, the already and the not yet. Jesus had accomplished some things in his life. And in some sense, he's accomplished all things in his death and resurrection. It's already taken place. And in a real sense, there is a defeat of uh, all that opposes God in that event. The old eon, in some sense, the old age is behind us, yet its effects continue and will so until the second coming. But what he really believes that the new age has dawned in Christ and at his resurrection it was inaugurated. Something new is taking place in the world. These Christians, you can forgive them, were confused about some of these things. Paul's thought is not always easy to understand, as 2 Peter states. Some things that Paul writes, says Peter, are difficult to understand. Well, it's not that he was a, a, a person who couldn't write and express himself. We are dealing with heavenly mysteries. And so these Christians then were confused. And Paul sets about to set them straight. 
Today, I want you to see that the second coming is a comforting doctrine, rightly understood, for both the living and the dead. It is the consummation and the consolation of the communion of the saints. Now, there are a lot of C's there. Let me say that again. It is the consummation and the consolation of the communion of the saints. We are bound together with the living and the dead in the body of Christ. When we talk about the Catholic Church, we're not only including the living, but we're talking about those who've gone on before us. I have a roster of names from an early uh, church directory uh, when I first came, and almost none of those people are here today. Some are, but not many. And I cherish that. And I've gone back and looked at the records, and I can see where there are names that I have no idea who they are. Linda Lou Sully had to take me to a cemetery, and we walked around the cemetery and looked at the tombstones of people who had died and gone on before. And uh, we saw the first pastor. That's his picture downstairs. That's not God. That's J.R.R. Thompson. <laughs> That's one little Bible school boy inquired, is that God down there? He looks like it. <laughs> he was here for 62 years and died at 92 on Sunday afternoon after he had finished a sermon. Uh, wonderful heritage this church has. Wonderful, marvelous. But the important thing is that that's not lost. And Paul wants these people to know that. And the future, when we talk about the Catholic Church, we're talking about the future, all those that will come after us until Jesus comes. And so Paul has good news for the past, the present, and the future. It's consolation, if you will, for those who are disturbed or confused by life's events. And it's encouragement, to say the least. Now notice how Paul approaches this matter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Uh, he approaches the problem, and he, he approaches it in this way. He, he recognizes that life and death pose problems for all of us. Living life is a problem, is it not? Living life is a problem. I thought when I got to 14 years of age, if I could only get to about 18, all my problems would be solved. When I got to 18, I said, well, that age must be about 25. Uh, I now think it's uh, 75. <laughs> my life's problems will be solved. No, there's no such thing, is there? We keep moving the goal line, but it, it, it doesn't make any difference. Life is a problem for all of us living it, facing the challenges, facing the heartache, facing the need again, as I pray over and over, for new and fresh opportunities for us. We live in a very changing world all the time. You see it in your own life, but it is worldwide. It is the way things are. Everything is transitory. Nothing, nothing 
can be nailed down in a permanent way. I was reading the news and living life was reminded in Vicksburg, Mississippi. They had 24 jobs in a job work center of some kind. They pay $8.60 an hour and, and around 200 people showed up for the job, for those 24 jobs. That's tough, isn't it? Those are tough times. When uh, 200 people show up for the minimum wage. It's tough around the world in Nigeria. I don't know whether you know it or not, in the last two days, 150 people have been murdered in Nigeria. In Nigeria, Boko Haram, an Islamist group, has murdered 150 people in two days. They're on the rampage trying to impose Syria over the Christian South. I could go around the globe and demonstrate ad nauseum how difficult it is to live in the world. But also death is a problem, is it not? Death. And it raises questions in all of our lives, the timing and the meeting, and it always involves God. After all, he is the God of the living and the dead, is he not? Therefore, when life is interrupted, and that's what death is, an interruption, it raises the question of why, and it raises the question of meaning all over again. Now, I want you to notice Paul's solution. He doesn't resort to psychological counseling. Now, I'm not opposed to psychological counseling. I'm opposed to bad psychological counseling, but not good. And there's very little good, by the way. It takes a difficult, uh, it's difficult to find a good person who is smart enough to deal with life's problems and well-trained enough. There are a lot more shingles hung up in the name of offering help than there is competence. So I'm not opposed to psychological counseling. Some of you are counselors. I've had training in counseling. I'm not very good at it for a host of reasons. But Paul doesn't really resort to psychological counseling or group therapy or any kind of session in that way. What might surprise many of you is that he thinks it's a theological problem. In some ways, these Thessalonians had had their comfort destroyed. I want you to notice the very last verse in the text. He goes on to say here in this, this particular passage, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive... And our left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet them in the air, or the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. Therefore, notice what he says, encourage each other with these words. Some translations have it comfort. Comfort each other with these words. Well, let me say that both words apply. We need comfort and we need encouragement. 
And here the apostle then wants to give comfort and encouragement, but what he does is he goes back and reminds them of some basic Christian truth. It's all tied to Christ, that he is coming again, but also that he came the first time and was raised from the dead. And he wants this to sink in their hearts and lives so that it might be real and active in their hearts and lives. Remember, most of our problems that we face, if they are true problems, they probably, as much as anything, are the result of wrong thinking, wrong perspective, not putting things in the light that they need to be put into. And so the Apostle Paul is going to furnish some illumination. He is going to perfect their faith, their theology, and help them to think rightly. Now, Paul knows as well as anyone else that some people by disposition struggle more with confidence and with comfort and with security than other people. He knows that. He is not an ignorant man. But he also, though, wants to take care of that problem that he can take care of with for everyone, and that is to make sure that they think rightly about the second coming of Christ and the resurrection and what it means. If you are to understand the first coming of Christ, you must go back and um, the second coming of Christ, you must go back and look at the first coming of Christ. They are linked. Now, remember in the Old Testament, that the first coming and the second coming of Christ are not disjointed. They are not separated. The suffering servant is also the triumphant Lord. But in time and history as it unfolds, we know that Jesus first came as the suffering servant, and then the second time he will come as the triumphant Lord. The word for the second coming here is parousia, which means the arrival of a king. There are three words in the New Testament used for the second coming of Christ. The first is an apocalypse, a revelation, an opening of heaven, if you will. The second is an epiphany, which means an appearance. Every eye shall see and behold. But what they shall see and behold is a king who shall come. Parousia, the arrival of a king. And Paul means to comfort them in this way. He means to comfort the living, and he means to comfort those about those who've gone on before. Now, as you look at this passage of Scripture, he not only then offers up a solution to the problem uh, through theological training, if you will, and he offers them comfort in this way, let me remind you that he is comforting the living. The living always need comfort and encouragement, don't we? My father, I've mentioned him a, a, a number of times of late, uh, and I mentioned to the book club the other day and to the session, I think, that he keeps asking me one question over and over when I see him or talk to him on the phone, which is about once a week. And uh, that question is, Will we know your mother in heaven? Will we know your mother in heaven? Now, my father knows the Bible as well as anyone. 
Honestly, he does. I doubt if you could quote a chapter, uh, a verse in any chapter in the Bible that he couldn't take you to it or get pretty close. So his problem in some sense is not because he hasn't read the Bible. He's having some struggles with my mother who passed away a few years ago. Will we know your mother in heaven? And I have struggled to turn to a verse of scripture to definitively answer that, but this is the one that I would turn to now. A new and fresh reading of this assures me through the word that we will. I want you to hear this. This is quite comforting to the living concerning those who've gone on before and concerning life. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, he says. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say those who are dead, those who are fall asleep. That is a euphemism he is using. Why? Because he wants you to understand that if from our perspective, it's very beautiful, uh, brutal. But from God's perspective and perspective of the resurrection of Christ, it is but a sleep. It is but a sleep. Now, you always wake up from a sleep, don't you? Well, most of the time. There are a few exceptions. Most of us would like to go to bed one night in, say, at 100 years of age and just go to sleep. That doesn't happen very often. Go to sleep. Desum dorme, huh? Go to sleep. Sleep. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. It's a matter of fact, in the second coming of Christ, those who are asleep have precedence, if you will, over those who are living. He says he doesn't want you to despair. It's because of the resurrection. Jesus could not come again at the end of history if he had not died for us and been raised for us in history. And it's a decisive event. And it relativizes everything. He who comes again is one who came the first time and was raised from the dead. And those who die in the Lord belong to him who has the power of life and death in the resurrection. That's comfort. Some cheap words, even some high wisdom cannot touch that. For it is the word of God. And he starts out by saying that. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. They will be raised. According to the Lord's own word, he says. We tell you that we who are still alive and who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Well, that's comfort to the living. 
That's really comfort for my father who keeps asking that question. I'm going to point him to that verse and ask him to think about it and meditate on it. I think that's escaped him. He's looked elsewhere. Sometimes we get a new and fresh insight. Notice verse 14. God will bring then with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. The living will not precede or prevent those who are dead. Let me also say it's a comfort to those who face their end. The psalmist says, teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. The sad thing in life from the human standpoint is that everything comes to an end. Everything, every last blooming thing comes to an end. But this is comfort. This is comfort too. We will be raised in Christ. I want you to also notice something else that's not in this text, but Paul follows up on it in other places. He says, our labor in the book of Revelation, or in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And if you want a very comforting verse, look at Revelation 14, 13. It is a verse that I use at funerals, and I've used it at the service of many of the saints have gone through this church. And in verse 13, he says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Nothing that we do or say is in vain in the Lord. All human achievements, if you will, true human achievements, will not go without honor, for the Lord has been raised. You know, I was thinking about this. There is a lot of hurt in Alabama today. I mentioned Mississippi, I might as well go to Alabama. I know those people pretty well. There's a lot of hurt down there. Some of you are scratching your head. Why are they hurting? They lost a football game yesterday. It was the biggest football game this year and maybe for a number of years. Two best teams in football played, LSU, Louisiana State University, and the University of Alabama. And they are great teams, probably heads and shoulders above every, every other team in America. They played. No touchdowns were scored. And it was 6-6 at the end of regulation. Two field goals they kicked each side. But Alabama made some mistakes in the overtime. And LSU got the ball back and kicked a field goal to win 9-6. to six. Well, I'm here to say <laughs> all events and all hurts are relativized because Jesus has been raised from the dead at the second coming. They'll be healed. It'll probably take till the second coming, too. 
They're passionate football fans. But the beautiful thing is that we will be joined with our loved ones. And we will see things in a new light, in a new way. And if we can trust the word of God and the resurrection of Christ, it does bring great comfort and encouragement to our hearts. And I'll take this encouragement any day of the week. For it is based on that one who says that his promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Amen.